everyone? Good morning. Good morning. We're a bit quiet this morning. Uh, everyone's away in Kezika here, you know. Everyone's uh, on their holidays. People have gone away already, Easter break. But it is good to be here together, uh, despite maybe the empty spaces around you. Um, this morning, uh, we are continuing our series uh, of Disciples Shaped by the Cross, you know, our Cruciform series. Uh, we are looking at this morning at Mark chapter 15. Um, that's where we're going to be spending our time this morning, kind of encamped uh, uh, there. And that passage from verse 15 is where we're going to be reading from. Uh, if anyone needs a Bible, I'm sure we can get your Bible. Um, uh, uh, whilst if you need one, just kind of raise your hands and I'm sure the stewarding team will bring one in for you. Um, that would be really good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, uh, something went through my head then. Ruth said, Chris, you need to, when you get up there, you need to address the, the thing, situation about your hair. And I kind of I suddenly went, no, I don't. What I'm talking about? And I had that conversation in my head. So apologies. I threw myself there. Anyway, don't worry about it. Moving on. What we're doing? Preaching God's word. Okay. Have you ever been told good news? Have you ever been told good news? Yes. yes. What good news were you told, anyone? Tell me some good news. Shout out good news this morning. A baby. A baby. Yeah, a baby. I remember the first time Ruth told me she was pregnant with James. I remember getting that phone call. I was out somewhere and she's like, Chris, you need to get home as quick as you can. And I'm thinking, what on earth's gone on? What's happening? I go upstairs and she's like, we're pregnant. Yay. And the second time was a little bit different because I was cooking dinner um, and it was so unexpected. It was so unexpected. I'm cooking dinner and Ruth comes in. I'm like, you okay, darling? She's like, I'm just taking a pregnancy test. I'm pregnant. <laughs> it was just like, what? It was just amazing. But yeah, good news. Pregnancy, babies. Any other good news? Anyone got some good news? Graduation. Graduation. When you graduated, amazing quality. So being able to graduate and, you know, the different achievements that people may have. Yeah. Anyone else? Good news? Getting jobs, yeah, new jobs, jobs, different exciting opportunities that come about, you know, different moments in your life where you've maybe you've got the good news that you've had, uh, you've received and you've got a new job. Yeah, great job. Anyone else? Go on, shout one out. When Tim proposed to you. Yes, yes, when Tim proposed. Yes, okay. Proposals, good news, isn't it? Nice when we hear stories like that. Um, if you ever get a chance, ask Ruth about my proposal story. It's probably not as nice as yours was, all right, okay? Or as romantic, but that's a story for another time. Uh, but yeah, good news stories about proposals. Anyone else? So there's lots. You know, I remember the story time where our, the offer on our house got accepted that we, that we bought. I remember that first time, you know, you're kind of nervous and you put the offer in and you kind of put the phone down and it's like kind of waiting on tender hooks. And you get the phone call saying, yeah, we were accepted it. We've got a new house. Amazing. I remember the time where James, our oldest boy, wasn't very well when he was younger. He had leukemia. I remember the first time we got the news that he was officially all clear. Cancer was no longer in his body. I remember just being weeping, weeping with joy over that good news. Do you know, good news is a really, it's a, it's a great thing, isn't it, to be able to share that. You know, different stories, even now as we share that, you know, it brings back memories of just happiness, joy, celebration. And, you know, even if it doesn't directly impact us, we, you know, we love hearing those stories, don't we? You know, because it gives us that optimism, it gives us that hope, it gives us that positive outlook that the world isn't all bad. We hear good news, and it's important that we share good news. Let's be quick to testify of the good news that we have. 
But the very beginning of this book, in chapter 1 of Mark, it says, at, it says the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning. This is the beginning of the good news. And what we're going to read this morning is the kind of, you know, what ev- all of this has been leading up to. The good news. This whole book has been leading up to this point. You know, we're about to read its conclusion, and at first glance, maybe to a new reader, ultimately it might not seem very good. I'd imagine at the time that the disciples, you know, were here, present, watching what was happening in front of them. It didn't feel very good, but it is. It's the good news. Rugby for Christ have had the opportunity this year to deliver Easter lessons in three high schools to 19 classes to 608 young people hearing the gospel presented, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's just this year alone, let alone the past 30 odd years. But this year, a kid asked me, a kid asked me, he said, Chris, why is Good Friday called that? Because it doesn't seem very good. And on the face of it, it doesn't, does it? This sobering subject matter, it kind of jars with that name, the Good Friday, that kind of it brings. But it is, it is the good news of Jesus Christ. This word, good news, meaning glad tidings, good message. And we've heard a lot in this series that we've been talking about. About this, particularly this verse, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And what we're going to do this morning is read the account of Jesus carrying the cross. So let's read from Mark, Mark chapter 15. And we're going to read from verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on them. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but did not take it. They crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he had died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. You know, Mark's gospel has been described when I was reading and I was studying and I was getting ready and preparing for this morning. It's been described of as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. You know, everything about this gospel has been leading up to this point here, what we've just read about. Mark's description here was without comment or interpretation, but literally just as it happened. Didn't need it. Everything that had come before was leading to this point, this final point of Jesus' ministry in his suffering and his death and eventually, which we'll read about next week, his resurrection. So it starts with a beating. It starts with him being mocked, hail the king of the Jews. And do you know this was something that Jesus himself even prophesied in earlier on. In Mark chapter 10, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and then kill him. And three days later he will rise. This was something that Jesus said. And this is it happening now. It's being fulfilled. And the mocking of Jesus serves to drive home, again, this point of suffering, what Jesus is about to go through. Hail, King of the Jews, Jesus' formal charge. And here we see an account of this contrast between how somebody would treat a king, you know, someone of royalty, someone of sovereignty, and the contrast of how they treated Jesus in a mocking tone, in a mocking way. He was led into the governor's palace, a residence with, they reckon, about 600 soldiers there present at this point. So he's led into this royal place, as anyone of that kind of standing would. He's led in, he's given this purple robe, a royal collar. And he's given a crown of thorns, which is this painful imitation of what the Caesar would have got. You know, the the Caesar would have received this crown of thorns. And actually, as I was reading this, just a bit of a side note, which I I just found fascinating. And again, I just love the, the, the kind of detail of this. Thorns are an emblem of the curse of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, it said, Cursed is the ground. Then it goes on, it talks about it will produce thorns. So the Roman soldiers here unknowingly took an object of the curse, fashioned it into the crown for the one who would deliver us from that curse. Isn't that amazing? And so Jesus received a crown of thorns. He received this traditional greeting that again would have been saved by, uh, for, for if Caesar came in. Hail, hail Caesar, hail. But hail king of the Jews. And they're doing this in a mocking way. In a tone that just is just like, I'm, I don't believe it. And we're just going to take the mick completely out of you in this way. Mockery. Bowing the knee. is a standard act of any respect to any king. You know, it's this standard way of receiving. And normally, a kiss of respect. But what did they do? They spat on him. And here, spat on him is probably better translated as spitting on him, as in they kept spitting on him. 600 people. 
Jesus went through all of that because in their eyes, a king who goes so meekly and without resistance was this obvious target from this, for, for mockery. In their eyes, it, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't compute. This so-called king, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. And so when Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah earlier on, this account pivots around this confirmation. But actually, Peter and even Israel are expecting a Messiah that is conquering. But here, Jesus is the suffering servant Messiah. Throughout Jesus' teaching, uh, it's quite countercultural when he talks about his kingdom. The first and the last, the rich are the poor, the powerful, the weak, insiders are outsiders, the greatest are the least. But you know, every time Jesus predicted his death, it was always in the context of arguing, the disciples or people arguing about power, leadership, glory, greatness. And it took time for the disciples to reconstruct their worldview and grasp actually that what Jesus was talking about was talking about servanthood, that greatness comes through servanthood. And here Jesus was demonstrating this. And so as disciples who are shaped by the cross, the challenge is, what are we about? What are we about? Are we about self? Are we about titles? Are we about positions? Are we like the disciples who initially at that point were still focusing on those things? Jesus, we want to sit at your right hand. Like, Are we still focusing on those things? How do we respond when faced with mockery? How do we respond when faced with with false accusations? How do we respond? What is our response here? Because Jesus again is demonstrating the ultimate proof of the truth of his teaching. He's demonstrating what it means to serve to the last degree. And then he was made to carry his cross. Do you know, after a scourging, the whipping that Jesus received... You know, when you describe the cat of nine tails, when you see what it was, this handle with nine bits of leather and interwoven those bits of leather with anything sharp, you know, bone and metal, the scourging that Jesus received, the whipping that he received, after that, he was forced to march in a parade. And this tradition, you know, the centurions on horseback, you know, a herald who would shout this crime of the person that was condemned to die. You know, it was Rome's way of advertising, advertising that crucifixion, if you offend Rome, if you betray Rome, this is what will happen to you. And Jesus was made to carry his cross. But it's recorded that Simon of Cyrene was forced to help him carry the cross. And even that, I think, you know, the very sight of a, of a Messiah needing help. Imagine that at the time, it must have been quite shocking. But Simon was the first one to carry a cross and follow Jesus. And do you know the fact that it was mentioned that he was the father of Rufus and Alexander in this passage? I think that's, a, that's, that's just a significance. It's something of significance in the sense that it implies that the readers of this letter know who they are. The readers in Rome, you know, originally reading this letter, would have been going through intense persecution. And there we have someone that they know. They have a link. They have a link to this story, a reminder. This would have meant so much, more, so much to them. And it's a reminder of picking up their cross and following Jesus. In the midst of intense persecution, here we have again a reminder to deny self, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. And so... In this passage, it says, they crucified him. They crucified him. 
And do you know when this was first written, this practice of crucifixion probably didn't need any explanation. It's probably why Mark didn't necessarily go into great detail here. But centuries later, we, could, we should probably could learn to appreciate and understand that what actually Jesus went through when it came to the cross. Do you know the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. They perfected it as a form of torture. They perfected it as a capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death, maximum pain, maximum suffering. Jesus' back was torn open by this whipping, by the scourging. He was then made to carry a huge beam of wood that wasn't smooth, but it had been rough splinters digging into those open wounds on his back. He was so exhausted, he couldn't carry it the whole way, and he needed somebody's help. And then as he hung on the cross itself, the very breath that kept him alive made it all the more painful in the fact that his whole body would have to push up with those wounds open on his back against that wood again. When the nails were driven through the wrists, you know, it's, it's, it, it cut through a nerve going to the hand. And that nerve produced excruciating bolts of pain in both arms and could result in a claw-like grip in the victim's hands. Beyond the pain, the posture of crucifixion made it painful to simply breathe. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and soldiers made, shoulders made it feel like you could breathe in but not out. This lack of oxygen led to severe muscle cramps, which made it harder to breathe. To get one good breath, one had to push against the feet, flex the elbows, pull in from the shoulders, putting the weight of the body on the nail-pierced feet, producing searing pain, flexing the elbows, twisting the hands, hanging on the nails, lifting the body for a breath, also, again, scraping the open wounds on the back against the rough wooden post. Each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a quicker death. Jesus went through that for six hours. Nine o'clock they put him on there. Three o'clock he died. Six hours. And then they crucified him. This is what was happening to Jesus while everybody watched and above his head read that charge, King of the Jews. The, sh- the sign that showed the charge that was treason, even though Pilate had declared him innocent, the irony of him being executed on the basis of a wrong interpretation of actually what he truly was. Mark accounts, you know, Mark accounts of this gospel. Six times Jesus was recorded as king. And it shouldn't really take us by surprise, the reader of this gospel, because throughout his ministry, Jesus had demonstrated sovereign power. Over sickness, nature, hunger, demons, and even death. People had commented on his authority. Spirits recognized him as the Holy One of God, Son of the Most High. And even the crowds hailed him as king when he rode into Jerusalem. King of the Jews. Jesus was a powerful king. He lived, and as a sovereign king that he died. And his sovereign power reached its summit, not by avoiding the cross, but by accepting it. He was an unrecognized king by the people whose very job it was to be on the lookout for the coming Messiah. He was an unexpected king. Because it wasn't like a kingship that they experienced before, nor did it conform exactly to the expectations that people had of the Messiah. But he was the king. 
He is the king. P.T. Forsyth, a famous theologian, said, A king the world could crucify is no king the world could fear. But this king does not find his fate on the cross, but surprisingly judges the world from it. He reigns supreme from it and brings his new kingdom into existence through it. Even whilst he was on the cross, he was still being mocked. Still being mocked about not being able to save himself when the very fact of what he was doing was saving others. He couldn't do both. And so he lets out a cry. Three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know, if I started a song with a, with a famous song that everybody knows with certain lyrics, you could probably finish the song for me. You could probably start thinking of the tune in your head. You know, different, different songs that everybody knows. We start with a key little bit and we could finish it, you know, because you know, we, we remember things like that. When Jesus said this, I'm sure the Pharisees and attendants would have done the same thing. Because in Psalm 22, it starts by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when Jesus said this, the Pharisees would have been going through this psalm because they've memorized the whole of the Old Testament. They knew this inside and out. This psalm that says things like, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It goes on to say again in Psalm 22, Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on all my bones. People stare at me and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. This is a psalm that's written way before Jesus was crucified. Yet here we go, here we see Jesus saying this. So what was going through the Pharisees' head at this point when they're hearing something quoted? Did they recognize? Did they see? But actually, this cry underlies the enormous cost to Jesus. The enormous cost of Jesus' obedience to the Father's will. Because in harmony with the prayers that he had in Gethsemane, he was deeply troubled, he was distressed, and he was overwhelmed with sorrow. See, here we have the ransom price being paid to set many free. Here we have the bread and the wine on which the new covenant is based being offered and poured out. This cry reflects the awfulness of fulfilling the task. He was bearing on himself the awful consequences of our sin before God so that those who come by faith in him may be set free of those consequences and follow his way of obedience to the Father. This happened in the sense that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, but the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute 
for the sinfulness of humanity. This cry reflects that. This is good news. This is good news. The tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom happened at this point, after this point. So because of sin, disobedience, the consequence was death. We were cut off from that relationship with God. So Jesus became the offering and he paid the price for our sin. The temple curtain was completely torn in two. It is finished, it is recorded in John 19, verse 30, that Jesus saying when he cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. It's done. It's paid in full. That word, it is finished, in ancient Greek, it's just one word. And it's tetelestai. I probably pronounced that completely wrong. Forgive me for that. But that word, when it's written down, it was written down in the old, in the kind of New Testament time on business documents or bills or receipts to indicate that that bill had been paid in full. That's what Jesus said when he was on the cross. It has been paid in full. And this is our cry. Because Jesus paid in full the debt of sin that we owed and had finished the internal process, purpose sorry, of the cross. It's finished. It's been paid off. This isn't just like paying off like interest on a loan that we owe this, and we still actually own in the loan. Does that make sense? This isn't just, you know, if I, I, I'm paying off interest on, on my mortgage. You know, this is completely paid off. The whole debt, wiped clean. It is finished. Only by the grace of God, we are forgiven, justified, made righteous, and we are now at peace with the Father because it is done, it is finished because of this moment here. This is where, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. And this isn't where the story ends. So part two next week, okay? But this is the good news. Do you know the good news of Jesus Christ in your life? Because if you don't, there's opportunity too. Because there's an invitation to come and follow Jesus. To know this truth in your life. To be forgiven. To be made whole. To be made righteous. To be justified before the Father. To be at peace. To know the love. Don't know if you saw the wall, uh, the windows you walked in. For God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You can know the good news of Jesus today. And so what's our response to this? What's our response? There's a song by a guy called John, uh, Josh Baldwin, sorry, and it says you deserve it all. This is just one of the verses from it. It says, there on a tree, merciful king, broken and shamed for all to see, the father laid down his son from darkness to light, death lost to life, Heaven and earth will join and sing because Jesus has overcome. 
And the chorus goes, we give him our highest praise because he deserves it all. If we think back again to the recipients of this letter, the Roman Christians who experienced intense persecution, this account that we've just read of Jesus' death was this continued reminder to stay faithful in spite of what they were experiencing, presenting Jesus' suffering as that example, to count the cost, and to pursue him. See, as a believer here, we can experience the cross is obviously central to our, infa- our entire faith. Of course it is. We want to be disciples that are shaped by the cross. And as disciples of Jesus, we are to be cross bearers. Jesus carried the cross for us, but we are called to carry it for him. To follow Jesus in obedience this self-giving love for God and for people and following Jesus' example in our serving, serving one another and serving those outside of the church, outside our neighbors, our communities, our towns. If we want to see transformation, if we want to equip communities you know, and make new disciples, this is what this is about. Following Jesus' example, serving, demonstrating, showing, declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. But you know, there's an experience that we experience together as a community, as church. Because the cross not only results in the salvation of individuals, but it created a brand new community in the sense of the church, us. Jesus established a fellowship of believers who would live his way, spread his message once he had died, a people belonging to God. And what a surprising community it is. Think about who, he, who we have around us even now in this room. You know, he chose, Jesus chose a remarkably unstable and ordinary bunch of men and women, people on the margins of society, but were all welcomed in. This is a message of good news for everyone. And here we have in this account, Simon, a man of, from Cyrene, you know, the Roman centurion, different people throughout this story who would have been maybe on the fringe of that society, that Jewish society, being brought into this story because the cross draws them in. The ripping of the temple curtain highlights this. The cross has made access to God available to all, regardless of gender, race, class, or position. And do you know what, guys? The cross is the only route. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And he brings a level, of, a level footing for us to carry our own cross but enjoyed a restored communion with God. Jesus is the suffering servant who bears away the sins of the world. The conquering king who defeats death. And the example of a disciple who encourages us to keep going until a new community is complete and we see him again. I had the privilege of attending a funeral on Thursday. And this passage was talked about a lot. 2 Corinthians 5. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, 
And then he has committed us to this message of reconciliation that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we've been charged with this message to be disciples shaped by the cross, to experience that, know that within our lives as we share and take that to those around us.